0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. If you are new here, my name is Tyler Johnson. I am one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you. I love even that moment of social distance, make people feel like family. Uh, the reality is, I think, being human beings made in the image of God, we're not made for social distancing. Now, all of you who are introverts are like, uh, that's not true. I love <laughs> I love, I love social distancing but I just feel myself propelled to hug people, to shake hands, and to do it. But we really appreciate you guys as we've asked you to wear masks, that you're wearing masks. We know this is a controversial issue, but as we press into what it means to love each other in the midst of these times, as complicated as that is, you're doing a great job, and we are very, very thankful for it. So we are in. Thank you for that. We are in the Gospel of John, so if you want to open your Bibles or open an app, that's the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are going to walk through the Gospel of John, and I'm going to present a challenge to you that our founding and late pastor, Tom Schrader, um, applied to this same church when he started the Gospel of John, and it's this. If you're in this room, I'm going to challenge you to stay with us through the whole series. If you're brand new and you go, I don't even know where I am in faith, I'm going to say to you, stay with us. It's going to be a long journey, but the purpose of the book is that we might believe, and I'm going to challenge you. If you're with us and you're teetering and you're wondering what's happening in your life and where you may end up, I'm going to challenge you, listen to me, stay with us through the whole gospel of John. As Paul Artino, one of our pastors, spoke last week, there's a very explicit stated purpose in the gospel of John. It doesn't happen in many uh, books of the Bible. But here's what it is. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, this book is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, In his name, this idea of life comes out in John a lot. And I want to just ask you, do you want life? Like in this culture that just feels dead and dying, do we want life? And he goes on in this gospel and he'll say, I came to give life and give it to the full. Do you want full life? This word believing isn't just for those of you who've never believed before. Believing is what happens when we come to believe in Jesus as the Christ, as Lord and Savior for the first time. It carries on, and this is why the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who writes a lot of the Bible, says that this gospel in which you were saved, are being saved, and will be saved. So it has past, present, and future realities to it, just like belief. We have believed. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. The purpose of this book is to help us all believe. So let's pray. God, we ask right now for revelation. I pray that you would show off this morning. You would show up and you would show off. God, show yourself as God this morning. We pray for revelation. We pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to comprehend with all the saints what is the height breadth depth width length of the love of christ in jesus name we pray amen <clears throat> so I'm going to ask you a question I'm going to ask for your response how many of you guys have ever done one of those bigger table puzzles so quite a few all I'm assuming everybody in here knows what it's like to do a puzzle it can get you can have a lot of anxiety at times you don't know which direction to go you don't know what to place where but What's the worst thing that could happen when you're putting a puzzle together? Miss a piece, what's worse than that? You lose the picture, right? The cover of the box, you lose the picture. Now, let me say to this, the picture that you hold right now of the world determines the pieces you play. The picture you have of the Bible, when you approach it, determines how you read the Bible. So the question is, do you even have the right picture? Can I get an amen? A lot of life right now feels like a puzzle. Can I get an amen? amen? Does life feel like a puzzle? Like what pieces do we play? They played that piece. Was that the right piece to play? That was a stupid piece to play. Do I even know what piece to play? Well, you've got to get the whole picture. And before we approach the gospel of John, with the purpose of us actually living out the word, actually following Jesus, we have to have the right picture. I, this morning, am not going to present the whole picture, but I'm going to say, when you see a picture, you look and you go, well, on this backdrop of this whole scene, here are these major components of this picture. I'm going to give four major components that if we miss, we won't get the gospel of John. John. That if we miss, you will not get the Bible. If you miss, you won't get God. And if you don't get God, you don't get the world. Because the world is a puzzle. And the backdrop of the picture that we see right now in our world is the backdrop of division. And don't be fooled. In the midst of the backdrop of division that's happening inside here, marriages are being divided. Families are being divided. Schools are being divided. Communities are being divided. Cities are being divided. Our nation's being divided. The world's being divided. Don't be fooled. Jesus didn't lie. There is an enemy who's out to seek, to kill, and to destroy, whose purpose in seeking and killing and destroying is just to divide. That's what sin does. Sin separates us, divides us from God, it separates us from ourselves, it separates us from each other, and it separates us from the world in which we inhabit. That's the purpose of the enemy. God's purpose was and always has been, even before the enemy, to unite The nature of sin is anti-love. The character of the enemy is destruction and division. The character and nature of God is love and unity. So we look in the backdrop right now of division in our world. We see these major components. The first piece we play in understanding the gospel of John, the Bible, God, and the world is this. Jesus is God. God. Jesus is God. This major piece that we play is Jesus is God. This gospel begins in chapter 1. We're going to look at this passage in more detail next week with this statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Stop. You may have some people who show up to your house with different translations of the Bible. I don't have the time to go through it all, but this is a key phrase, and you're going to see in a minute, and the word was God. The word, as you play out chapter one in the gospel of John, is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Jesus is God. The passage moves on. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Now stop. We will say, as will many historic religions, that God is the creator. This passage is saying God is the creator, and Jesus spoke the world into existence. And in him, Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. In a culture of death, do we want life In a culture of darkness, do we want light? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is God, is this first piece that we must play. I want to break that phrase down for a minute. It sounds very familiar to many people who might have grown up in the church or to many people that understand Christianity, but Jesus is God. You say it like this when you understand the whole teaching of the Bible and the New Testament, what Jesus himself said is that God is like Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look at the person, that's a key phrase, of Jesus. Look at the person of Jesus. Much of what we see right now in the current contemporary American church You're forced to step back and look at what's happening in the church and go, have we missed the person of Jesus? Have we actually slowed down long enough to look at his 33 years in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to understand what God is really like? Because there's a missing person. And I want to ask you this question. I'm going to just let you be quiet for just a minute. How do you get to know a person? I'm not asking you to answer. Just, just think about this for a minute. How do you get to know a person? Time, communication. In the midst of two people trying to get to know each other, even if it's in the midst of marriage or family, one of the biggest accusations oftentimes is, you don't listen to me, you just talk at me. You know, we have a much higher view of the mouth than the Bible does because the Bible actually says, God's in heaven, here are we on earth, let your words be few. The Bible actually says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. We think all the time about ministry as a mechanism of the mouth, of which it is, but there's equally as powerful a part of the body that serves, loves God and loves neighbor and it's the ministry of the ear. When you slow down to get to know a person, the person of Jesus, you gotta slow down and you gotta spend time with him. You gotta listen to him. You gotta use your eyes and watch him. You'll be astounded as you do. You slow down like you do when you get to know a person. You begin to see their mannerisms and at times it makes you laugh, at other times it makes you wonder. At other points it's massively frustrating. This is all what it is. To get to know a person, I was challenged one time with someone asking me the question Do you know the cadences of Jesus? And I had to stop and go, What does the word cadences mean? Like his rhythms. Why does he do this and not that? Why does he say this there and not there? This is a challenge to us all to say, Let's slow down together in this study in the Gospel of John and in other presenting opportunities that will present themselves to us, and let's get to know Jesus because Jesus is God. That statement, then, God, is this statement of authority. Like, there could be no name, no title, no position, no reality thicker than God, right? Even if you're in this room and you aren't a believer and you go, if there's a God, God holds authority, In the whole history of the religions of the world, God creates the universe. The Bible is very clear that God created the universe and upholds it by the word of his power. There is a delineation in the statement, Jesus is God. The Jews all throughout the Old Testament were were to state every single day, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which was a statement that there is no other. Yahweh is God, and there is no other God. Our statement where we stand, Jesus is God, is a delineating statement. It was then. You know, when you read the Gospels, you see there's all these different kinds of people. There's these religious people, the Pharisees, and there's a religious group called the Sadducees. They hated each other, but Jesus frustrated the snot out of both groups. The one thing they could unite on was the statement, Jesus is not God. Jesus walks in to different ideologies, right? The zealots are frustrated with Jesus because of what he's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Then there's the Epicureans who are saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, just live it up. He frustrates them. And then there's the Stoics, and he frustrates them. It was true then, and it's true now. The statement of Jesus is Lord, this piece to make sense of the puzzle, is a delineating statement. The statement, Jesus is God, delineates us from every other world religion. Muslims do not believe Jesus is God. Jews do not believe Jesus is God. Hindus don't. Sikhs don't. Buddhists don't believe Jesus is God. Then you get into people who actually claim the name of Jesus. Mormons do not believe Jesus is God. I have massive respect. I have incredible friends that are Muslims, that are Buddhists, that are Mormons. They don't believe Jesus is God. This is a line of delineation. The statement Jesus is God doesn't just delineate us from every other stated religion. It delineates us from every other functional religion. Folks, if you study the nature of what a religion is, the nature of trust and the nature of belief, the fact is our political parties have become religions. There are stats right now that say there are Christians, many of them, far too many of them, that say, I would rather have my child, I would be more comfortable with my child marrying somebody of an opposite faith or no faith than of the opposite political party. Folks, if you're a Christian, that's blasphemy. That's absolute blasphemy. Political parties are clear places where people are placing their hope and trust of what's going to renew and revive the world. The statement, Jesus is God, is a statement, the only thing that will renew and revive our world is Jesus, is God, and Jesus is God. There are political ideologies that are moving up, political movements and political cults that are rising up. You see signs of them everywhere. There's the signs everywhere and you see them and it's creating a lot of controversy, black lives matter. Let me tell you this, as we follow the statement, if we follow the truth and believe Jesus is God, we will forever as a church affirm the three words black lives matter because black lives matter. At the same time, at the same time, When you say the organization Black Lives Matter and we go to their website and the organization of Black Lives Matter says that they're in existence to destroy because it's a colonial mechanism, the nuclear family, marriage... The nature of so much of what it means to be a Christian in the core institutions that God gave the world because he loves the world, we will fully stand up and say, in large part, we wholly denounce the agenda of any ideology or any organization that stands up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Folks, listen to me. That is not hard to do those both things. That's not hard to do. It is not hard to stand up and go, when Jesus is God, I will forever affirm these three words, and when I look at an organization, say no. The same thing with the rise of political cults. There are the rise of these political cults right now that are placing confidence in, like, a man named Q, a reality of the takedown of an Illuminati. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, some trust in guns, some trust in gold. Even in the end, if loving our neighbor is putting on a mask and socially distancing, the truth of the matter is I don't trust the renewal of our world or the revival of our world to a president to an organization, whether it's a health organization, to a political movement, to the rise of a political cult, when you stand on the fundamental principle, Jesus is God, it means you bow the knee to Jesus into nothing else. Now listen to me. It's easy to clap. It's a lot harder to sit tonight and to say, what am I functionally trusting in? What am I functionally believing in? When I go to bed and anxiety hits me like a flood and I'm saying the world's going to hell in a handbasket, my marriage is going to hell in a handbasket, my kids are going to hell in a handbasket, the first place you have to start when Jesus says, don't be so fascinated. Don't allow more of your conversation to be about the speck in your neighbor's eye while ignoring the log in your own. What's my functional religion? God, what am I trusting in? The nature of us being formed in the image of Jesus as God. When the Apostle Paul does that, he comes to the end of his life and he says, you who came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Folks, what happens in a community, this community, Redemption Gilbert, what happens when we major first and foremost in our own sin? when we evaluate that the statement Jesus is God is not a statement that you can just say and profess and check a box to say that you're a Christian. It's based upon trust. We live in a time that is so wildly confusing. Language doesn't mean anything anymore. Things are confusing, and I'm convinced in John chapter 3, which we'll get to, and Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert to create healing, so God has lifted up Jesus so that all may believe. The question is, do we believe? Do we trust? Do we believe? That is a massive first piece to understand this puzzle. The second one is this, God is love. Jesus is God, God is love, which means Jesus is love. This same John who writes the Gospel of John pens three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. In 1 John chapter 4, this statement is said explicitly, God is love. But here's the context Beloved, you know what the word beloved means? Loved ones. Don't let that be lost. Loved ones, let us love one another. For love, is from, key verse, is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He goes on. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Let me just say it one more time. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let me take that up Because God is love. When you look at this and you go, Jesus is God, And we want to know the heart and the character of God. Who is this God? God is love. Three weeks ago today, we finished a series that Tim taught us um, called Gentle and Lowly. And it was based upon a book that if you have not gotten, I encourage you to go to the bookstore and get it. I assume they have some copies left or they'll order them or you can order them. It's by a man named Dane Ortland. And Dane Ortland in that book says this. This quote's going to come up. Dana Ortland, speaking about the character and heart of God, says, the Jesus given to us in the Gospels. So John is one of the four Gospels. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Okay, I want to just say, say that real quick. Jesus is not just simply one who loves. He loves because he is love. Tom Schrader used to always say up here, you don't you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner, right? I don't become a sinner when I sin. We are born in the world sinners. Jesus doesn't love, like, he doesn't just love. He loves because he is love. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love, Merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. Merciful affections. I'm not asking about everybody else. Look at me right now and just hear this. Do you want mercy? Mercy is compelling. Mercy is propelling. Merciful affections flow from the heart of God. When seeking to express what is God like, it's expressed as the best father there could be, a parent. God is love. Now, there's two major barriers right now. Two major barriers to this idea of God is love. And the first one is this. Sadly, there are a lot of Christians right now that have a barrier. It's like Christians against love because they think love's mushy, love's a slippery slope. Love's gonna take you down the wrong path and they'll set up love is at odds, is the opposite of truth. Hogwash. That's not not biblical, it's not true. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Jesus is truly God and truly man and he's full of both grace and truth, this gospel tells us. So love is full of grace and truth. When we talk about love, we don't lose truth. We embody truth. When we see God is love, love, 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, it rejoices in truth. Love is the character and the nature of God, and this is a major barrier. If we begin to believe love is mushy, we're allowing the culture's definition of love. A parent who loves their child stands up when they're doing things that destroy themselves. God hates sin because it destroys his beloved. God hates sin, unrighteousness, untruth, injustice, because it destroys the world he loves, John 3.16. Here's the other big barrier, is that God is love, love is not God. Listen to this. If you position love as the definer for God, you get to define love. Love. You can't. Love comes from God, 1 John 4 said, because God is love. He defines it. We don't. When we define love, we can say, well, accept anybody in anything that they do, putting ourselves in the place of the judge of ultimately what's right and wrong. I don't trust that. I don't trust myself to be the final arbiter on everything that's right and wrong. I trust God, too. He's the one who made the world. He's the one who spoke it into existence. He's the one who upholds it by the word of his power. God defines love. The culture does not. How we order that, God is love. Love is not God. Now, you're going, well, in math, 2 plus 3 or 3 plus 2 is the same thing. Who you put at the front defines the word, defines the reality, defines the power And the reality is everybody that truly loves someone doesn't just say it's all carte blanche, do what you want. Middle school friends do that. High school friends do that. Business friends do that who hardly know each other. True friends never do that. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds, the healthy wounds of a father or a mother. Faithful are the ones who tell us, follow this path. Choose this day whom you will serve. One path leads to life, one path leads to death. God is love. The motivating factor of God is love is what gives us grace in the gospel. The heart of God sees a creation that he has made in us as human beings going astray, creating the problem through sin, and he says, I'm not just going to leave them to their own ways, for God so loved the world. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, the purpose of the book, believe shall not experience death perishing but have everlasting, what's the word? Life. Folks, we live in a picture right now where it feels like everything's perishing. But God is love, and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed 1 John 4 says, in this is love, not that we began love. This is that passage, 1 John 7, 8, so when it gets to 10, he says, in this is love, not that we loved God. Love doesn't start with us. Love begins with God because God is love. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means all of God's hatred because of his love against sin for destroying his beloved. And when you realize sin doesn't just come out of us from the outside, which it does, it flows out of us from the inside. So God's propitiation is against the sin that's coming at you from the outside and the sin that's within you from the inside. And he says, I'll take that upon myself because I so love you in the world that he gives his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the first major piece is Jesus is God. The second major piece to make sense of this puzzle is God is love. The third one is we are called to love as God loved. We are called to love as God loved. This is actually somewhat in the grand scheme of things new to me um, because oftentimes I would just say, hey, the great commandment is love God with all your everything. Jesus said this, and to love your neighbor as yourself But the progression of the New Testament isn't just love your neighbor as yourself. It's love your neighbor the way Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? At death to himself. How did Christ love us? He who was rich became poor for our sake so that through his poverty we might become rich real rich, not money monetarily rich, rich in life, rich in light, rich in love. So God left his positions of privilege, of place, and entered into a world of sin and darkness on our behalf. And he says, beloved, As he loved us, so we also ought to love one another. The John that pens that in 1 John 4, the John that pens the gospel we're beginning to go through, the gospel of John. At the end of his life, there's a fourth century um, historian named Jerome. And he tells the story that when John was so old and so frail and yet a hero, but he couldn't walk, that he still wanted to participate in the life of the believing community of Christians. And so they gathered up these group of people who would pick him up, and every time they picked him up, he'd groan because his body hurts so bad. And as they picked him up, even before they picked him up, he'd just say this phrase, and he'd say, beloved children, love one another. Beloved children, love one another. And they said that as they'd pick him up, they'd walk a little bit longer, and he'd look around with his eyes, and he'd say, beloved children, love one another. And he'd do it every time. And then as they got to the gathering, and they crossed the threshold of the gathering, they said he'd pick up steam. Beloved children, love one another. Beloved children, love one another. Let me stop real quick and just remind you, this is the Apostle John. So he had done it so much for so long that finally there was a level of frustration. Like, why does the guy say the same thing all the time? It's John. He could tell us all kinds of things. And this is all he says. And they're like, this is all he would say. So finally they get frustrated and they go, John, why do you always say that? And his answer was, because, beloved, if you do this, you do everything. You know, that's interesting. That's what the Bible says. Like, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul, in the book of Galatians, the only thing that counts for anything is faith working itself through love. Paul, to the Corinthians, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Love. Love is the fulfillment of everything God said. So the question to us, what are we trusting? Who are we believing? How are we loving? Ultimately, how are we loving? Because here's the reality, folks. We're in a church that in some ways is confusing to a lot of people. We are conservatively orthodox at every single level. But because Jesus is God, we're taking his word really seriously to be in the world and to not be of it, to love people who are not like us. We are not perfect. And when we slip and fall, we are thanking God that this Jesus who's God and his Lord is also a savior and he picks us up. But I'm telling you, in my position, there is nothing that's clearer to me. There's nothing that's clear to the leaders of this church and the leaders of redemption than we will stand before the face of God in a judgment. If we look at our Bibles, judgment that is judged through the lens of how did we love God with all of our everything and how did we love as he loved us. We are very aware of that. But as we seek to be in the world, we're very aware, and it's happening. People are accusing us of things that are lies, People are saying things about us that are gossip, and here's the truth, and it doesn't get us off the hook for anything. Hold us to the scriptures. Hold us to the word of God. Hold us to the reality that Jesus is God. His word is true. His language and his character is love, and he's called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But the truth of the matter is grace levels us. The truth of the matter is love levels us. In Galatians chapter 6, in the message version, which I love, if you study why Eugene Peterson wrote the message and began to translate this for his own church, as he came to this conclusion that his congregation, who'd been so familiar with the Bible, needed the Bible translated into American, because they could read it and blow it off. In Galatians 6, he says this, don't be misled, no one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, exclamation point, harvests a crop of weeds. And he'll have to show for his life, all he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop. It's coming. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up and we don't quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with those who are closest to us in the community of faith. Folks, imagine with me for a moment, what would it look like If we were actually a people, if you were actually a family, if you actually had a marriage, if we actually were a church that considered the needs of others as more significant than our own, just imagine with me for a moment what that witness, what that picture could look like to all of those who are around us. What would it look like to be quick to listen and slow to speak? What would it look like to sacrifice a lot of the stuff we have and our time and our resources and our energy to sit with people and love people? What would it look like to say their needs in our community are our needs in our community? Because there are needs out there, there are needs in here. Just imagine for a minute and then say this to me. Would you desire a world and a community that looked like that? Let's not even talk about the world. Would you desire a community that looked like that? I do. And here's the reality, when love gets revealed at the proximate level, like Galatians 6 just said, it's so revealed, love those who are close to you, and I feel like an utter failure even in my own home. I go, God, I need help. And this is why in this gospel of John chapter 16, we're going to get to this point where Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. And here's the last piece, we need powerful help. Big piece: Jesus is God. Second big piece: God is love. Third big piece: God calls us to love as he loved, and we go, this is impossible. And he goes, with you, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. We need powerful help, and Jesus says, it's better for you that I go, because I will send you a helper. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come, but if I go, I will send the helper To you, a powerful helper. What we plead now is for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who will draw us, propel us to Jesus, who's God. So, right now, you have um, this cup and this bread, and we're going to take this right now, pleading with God to show up and show off as we prayed, to ask. We ask him right now to make sense of this puzzle through this reality of his godship, his character, his nature of love, his call for us to love each other. And we're saying in this moment, God, we need your powerful help.